Today, we have the privilege of perusing John 14, verses one through six. And I, I want to invite you, particularly the people here in the sanctuary and those who are worshiping with us online, we bid you welcome. If you turn to that passage now, if you need a Bible, we have them here in the sanctuary. They're in the seat back in front of you. And you'll find the passage on page 901. Do we have a word from heaven? I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I stand here in your presence and with these dear people confessing that I can't do this without the power of your enabling spirit. In fact, without you, I don't even want to try. So I ask you now, Lord, if you would please, bring your anointing that makes preaching easy. Help me to proclaim what you have already said, to do it faithfully and truthfully. And do now, Father, what really only you can do. Would you comfort? Would you convict? Would you call? I'll always be quick to give you the honor and the praise and the glory. Now we pray in the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus, and amen. The book of John is really a very unique book in the, Old, in the New Testament. John has a very different type of style and his perspective is unique. He tells us in one of his writings, I'm writing to you to tell you about what I've seen, what I've observed, what I witnessed, what I've experienced. And when he talks about that, he's saying, I studied him, I looked at him, I examined him. It's like someone watching a virtuoso play an instrument and you're watching his finger movements and how he is able to do what he's doing. He's saying, I'm telling you what I know. So much of the material in John is unique. Almost 90% of what we find in the Gospel of John isn't recorded in the other Gospels. In John, he recounts the seven miracles of Jesus, and we find the great I am statements in John. I am, said Jesus, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I am the resurrection and the life. When John wrote this, it was about 60 years had passed since Jesus' death and resurrection. And so at that time, people were rising up and they were already starting to say, you guys made the whole thing up. It never happened. I don't believe it. In the Gospel of John, he's not writing a story. History and historians both record that John was a real man talking about real events to things that he actually saw. But in his writing, he presents this almost like a, a lawyer presenting his case, presenting the facts, 
presenting the evidence and asking the jury, the world, to make its determination. Look at the text, John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Beloved, the Bible is the living word of God. Now, in its original form, there weren't any chapters, there weren't any numbered verses like we have now. These editorial advantages were added much later, and some of them as recently as the Protestant Reformation. So the passage that we just read, we need to put it in context. And in order for us to do that, we need to take a little bit of a running start and consider the events, the conversations, and the discussions that occurred in the preceding chapter, chapter 13. The context is simple. As he'd done in the past, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the pilgrim festivals, the festival of Passover. Now word of Jesus and his miracles had spread and as he entered Jerusalem that Monday with his disciples, they were met with cheers and applause and accolades. Some estimate over 100,000 people were there cheering his name because for them, he was the long-awaited Messiah. And with this Messiah, he was going to come and he was going to take the heel of Rome off of Israel's neck. He was going to free them and restore Israel to its glory. Jesus, Jesus, King, King, they cheered. And his disciples are right there with him. Can't you see them? They were there. Huh. There's nothing troubling about any of that. It's a celebration. It's a party. But then we get to Thursday and they have their Passover feast to celebrate Passover and what happens? They don't want to wash each other's feet. So Jesus takes off his clothes, dons a towel, and he washes their feet. You talk about getting shamed. I don't know about you, but nothing kills a party faster than getting shamed. But that's how it started. I'm going to linger here for a minute because the Holy Spirit is telling me to do it. What Jesus was showing them, beloved, is that you can't lead without being willing to serve. And I thank God for the men and the women here at the Moody Church 
that while they've been called to be in leadership positions, they have servants' hearts. And I thank God for this season of service that we share together. He shames them, but then he also says to them, this is 13, 33, I'm leaving. Not only am I leaving, but where I'm going, you can't go. And not only can't you go, one of you is going to betray me. And not only is one of you going to betray me, Peter, you're going to fail me too. Trouble? Jesus says to them, let not your heart be troubled. Now this word trouble, it's not the text of it. The Greek text here isn't don't become worried or anxious in the future. It's saying, I see that you're troubled right now. And the word is more like stirred up and agitated. It has that connotation that I'm a little angry, I'm a little frustrated, I'm a little confused, I'm a little stirred up, I'm a little what's going on here about it. And he's saying to them with this, let not your heart be troubled. It's an admonishment and encouragement all at the same time. What he's saying to them is, stop it. Stop it. They're troubled. Hmm, you might say. Well, why troubled? They've been with Jesus. They've been in tight spots before. They love Jesus and they've been dependent on him for guidance, for instruction, for purpose, for meaning, for perspective. And he's just told them while they're considering all of the praise and all of the adulation that they just received, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be murdered. Murdered? Yes. Jesus, you're going to die? Yes. In Mark, we learned that they had plans. Wait, 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 Jesus died, murdered. What are you talking about? What about our plans? I mean, we thought you were going to take a physical throne and, and that we were going to be on your left and on your, your right when you come into glory. We had plans here. What are you talking about? Not only is he leaving, you can't go. But wait, there's more. There's a traitor in our midst, right here, right now. And Peter, you're going to crumble. Peter, at a time when I needed you the most, Peter, when I needed you to stand up and, and speak up, you could have said, hey, I, I, yeah, I'm, one, I'm with him. I know him. And not only do I know this man, I can speak about his character. I can speak about his consistency. I can tell you about his motives. I can talk to you about the purity of his life. No, you're going to crumble. You're going to fail. In fact, all of you are, he tells them. Every one of you is going to be scattered. In 1321, we read this. When Jesus thus said those things to him, he was troubled in his spirit. 
and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you is going to betray me. Jesus is troubled. Same Greek word that stirred. John must have seen it. He writes about it. Yet we don't see or hear anything about their concern for Jesus. The grammatical tense is clear. You all stir it up now. Stop it, Jesus said. Now they didn't have to say anything. Jesus knew from the looks on their faces, but more importantly, he knew from their heart. You notice he didn't say, straighten up your face. I don't know, when I was younger, if I disagreed with the pronouncement that was made in my family, I couldn't go to something, or I was prohibited from participating in an event, I would oftentimes show my dissatisfaction with that parental decision by the look I would have on my face. And my father would be quick to tell me, you better straighten your face up. I hadn't said anything, but he wasn't going to have me looking like that either. He doesn't say, you look at the text. Jesus doesn't say, you better straighten up your faces. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Help us, Lord. That that is hidden is revealed to Jesus. Jesus, beloved, is acquainted with all of our thoughts. He shares our experiences and he provides both comfort and control. He knows our unconfessed needs, our undisclosed sorrows, the wound that bleeds inwardly. When you're shamefully disappointed, Jesus knows. When you're feeling deserted, feeling discouraged, feeling disgraced, exposed, abandoned, he understands. He understands. But can't you just hear his disciples? I, Jesus, I don't understand. I'm, I'm not getting this. We have forsaken everything to follow you for three years. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you told us when to sleep and where to sleep and what to eat and what to do. And, and what are we supposed to stop it? Stop it. Our Savior, he offers them encouragement and hope with this admonition, and he teaches us something here as well. I'll linger for just a moment to say it and to say it plain, beloved. Every time we face a test, Every time we face a trial, it's a summons on our heart to faith. Every time God gives us a fresh revelation of his word or his attribute, it is a call to us to faith. No, I don't think you hear me. What he's saying here is to them, listen, God's not asking you to figure anything out. He's asking you to trust that he already has. He's leaving them, but he's not leaving them alone. Stop it. Look at the text. You believe in God, believe also in me. They can't see God, yet they believe. 
And what he is telling them is that my power, my wisdom is not confined, it's not restrained, it's not contained, it's not limited. I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. And he gives them three points for hope and encouragement. Look again at verse 4. He tells them, And you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus tells them, plain and simple, that he is the way. Now, I love this next part. Thomas says, um, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. In plain language, Thomas, can't you hear him? Jesus, what are you talking about? The way, the way you go, I don't know. What, can you explain this to me? What are you talking about? I love that. He had already told them, I'm going to return to my father. So they know the where, they know where he's going. Consider Acts 4 where it says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Beloved, what the world would say, and maybe even some here and those under the sound of my voice, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Jesus being the way it appears to me to be offensively exclusive. Well, I want to invite you to consider who's making the claim. You see, John is recording it, but he's telling us what Jesus himself said. He's stating, I am the way. He is the exclusive way because Jesus alone conquered sin, conquered death, conquered the grave, and after three days rose again and ascended into heaven. He provided undeniable, unmistakable proof of his deity, his majesty, and his power. Offended by his exclusivity? I don't think so. I'm grateful, beloved, for 12-step programs and the way that they have helped many, many people. But I'm going to tell you the truth. It wasn't 12 steps that saved me. It was one Savior, and his name is Jesus. He is the way, and because he was the way, the early Christians and the early church, that's what they would call them. They became known to be in the way. Huh. Saul of Tarsus who later became the Apostle Paul. It's recorded in Acts that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, and he said that if anyone be found, found belonging in the way, be it a man or a woman, I'm going to bring them back here bound. Stubborn people, Scripture says, push back against the truth. Stubborn people, it says in Acts, will speak evil of the way, and stubborn people will riot and reject. Since the time of the people in Acts to our time today, nothing has changed. 
The truth is simple. God has a way. You can't go over it. You can't go around it. You can't go under it. You must come in at the door. God has a way. There's a gospel song to that. You might not know. You know that song? God has a way that you can't go over. God has a way that you can't go around it. God has a way that you can't go under. You must come in at the door. He's the way, he's the way, the truth and the light. If you want to know Jesus, okay, that's enough. Jesus alone is the way because Jesus alone is our second point, the truth. Oh, we got to linger here, beloved, because as a culture, we have greatly abandoned the pursuit of truth. We pursue and run after fame. We want to be an influencer. Want to have followers. We pursue and chase money and financial gain and status. We pursue power. And the byproduct of that, when you are pursuing power, it polarizes. And that's where we are in our culture. I'm right, you're wrong, and there's no way to reconcile our differences. We are not pursuing truth. We're not interested in truth. We're not interested in facts. I just want what I want. Postmodernism, there's no such thing as absolute truth, objective, universal truth. Truth is whatever I tell you it is. Oh, help us, Father. Sanctify us, Father, in truth. Your word is true. Psalm 119, verse 151 says, But you are near, O Lord, and your commandments are true. The disciples were with Jesus up close for three years. And in all that time, watching, observing, listening, everything he told them was true. Now, I want you to get your mind around that. I want you to consider how impossible that is. For three years, never, ever caught him in anything that wasn't absolutely 100% true. You want to see how difficult that is? Could you do it? Some of you failed at this this morning. You know you did. Are you ready to go to church? I'll be ready in a minute. You lied. Beloved, we can trust Jesus because he is trustworthy. You see, Jesus is always true. He's always been true. He's true now. He'll be true in Chicago. He'll be true in Africa. There is no place where you can go or be where he is not true. He's never wrong. 
He's never told a lie. He's never exaggerated. He's never miscalculated. He's never been surprised. There is no plan B. I'm talking about the veracity of his word, beloved. No, I don't think you hear me. You see, his truth is fixed. His truth is constant. His truth doesn't change. His truth isn't subject to adaptability. And in fact, you can't walk in this place without being reminded that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is why we stand firm we refuse to compromise on his word and the truth of the gospel and we proclaim loudly to the world and all that will hear Jesus when you have Jesus you have the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth help us God the world will tell you can't be true. Just too fantastic to be true. It is miraculous. It is supernatural. And it's 100% the truth. Beloved, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without life, we're just surviving. We're not living. John said in chapter 10 that the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. Hmm. But Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Kill, steal, and destroy. The enemies for the cause of Christ are real. What they want to kill is your joy. They'll kill you physically if they can, but they want to kill you steal you say I don't have anything worth stealing how about your eternal significance you see beloved only what you do for Christ will last the enemy doesn't want you serving in Awana or helping here at the church or being a greeter or setting up chairs, or dishing up ice cream. What he wants to do is put you on the bench and steal your eternal significance. What's he want to destroy? Relationships. Mother against daughter. Father against son. Congregant against congregant. Member against member. And his principal tool in all of this, just keep you busy. B-U-S-Y. Being under Satan's yoke. Too busy to read my Bible. I'm too busy to go to Wednesday night prayer meeting. Too busy to volunteer. It's a busy time, busy season. I got other things to do. 
on a treadmill going to nowhere. That's not living. It's just barely surviving. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. Whenever we have the privilege of listening to God's word, we should ask ourselves really one simple question. What is it, God, that you would have me to do with what I've heard? What is the practical application for me with what I've heard? I'll be honest with you, for me, I find comfort as I consider Peter and how Jesus dealt with him. In the hours and days after he betrayed Jesus, I can understand how Peter would be mired in depression. Jesus tells him, you stop that, stop it. Because in Jesus, beloved, we have hope, we have restoration, we have forgiveness, we have mercy, we have grace. We will stumble, we will fail, but in Christ we can be lifted up. Now, I'm not saying to you that we should not be concerned about our failures. Certainly we should. But what I am saying to you is that we don't need to stay cast down. If you've put your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to stay cast down. Don't be deceived, beloved. The world and your heart may even counsel you that there is no hope. You can stop that. That there's no opportunity for you. Stop it. Maybe your world has been turned upside down and you're feeling alone and dejected. Jesus is real, beloved, and the truth is he's coming again, and in this hope we are saved. <laughs> Let not your heart be troubled. Find comfort in that. Remember, Jesus, who is always truthful, he told us his absence is temporary and it's for a purpose. Heaven is a place and it's a condition. He says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. Now, our translation of mansion, due to our contemporary exposure, is a big single structure. This word really is more abode or dwelling. Uh, the closer thing would be apartment. But I'm not talking about no studio. <laughs> I'm talking about a nice apartment with built-ins and a sauna and marble floors. And what he is telling us is that he's going there specifically to design one for you. If you're a child of God, Leah, he's designing your apartment for you. If you're a child of God, Brother Fratz, he's designing your apartment for you, just like you like it. Revelation tells us a lot about heaven. I can't tell you everything there is in heaven, but I can tell you what won't be in heaven. Won't be any sin in heaven. Not going to be any tears in heaven. It won't be any pain or sorrow or darkness or distress. The curse 
will be gone. And Jesus is saying, listen, while I'm gone, I need you to trust me. My dear friends, the truth of the gospel is the one thing you simply can't afford to be wrong about. The Bible teaches us we can't save ourselves. We'll never be good enough to do it. We'll never be able to buy our way into heaven. We won't be able to rationalize or blame or denial. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. I wasn't there. You got the wrong one. None of the old familiar cards we play will work when you stand before him to be judged. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we're going to be truthful, and I trust that you will, when it comes to whether or not you are a sinner, the verdict is guilty. You can't save yourself and you can't earn salvation alone, guilty. And that one day we will stand and kneel before him and be accounting for this life, guilty. Beloved, you've heard the truth. You've heard the evidence. You've heard the facts. I'm asking you plain, do you know him? The timeless theme. Earth and heaven will pass away. It's not a dream. God will make all things new that day. Gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. Evil is banished to eternal hell. No more night, no more pain, no more tears, no more crying again. All praises to the great I am. We will live in the light of the risen Lamb. See over there, a mansion prepared for me, where I will live with my Savior eternally no more night no more pain i'm asking you plain beloved do you know him do you know him maybe you're here today and you just say you know what I haven't been all in. 
I've been trying to walk the tightrope, one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Can I encourage you to commit, rededicate your life to Jesus today? Maybe you're here and you say, I, I hear you, but I'm just not sure. I want to pray for you. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I believe. I'm not even sure how I know I believe, but I believe what you say. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that he's truth. And I believe that I can have life eternal reconciled to God through Jesus. Every head's bowed, every eye is closed. Father, would you now take the little that I have and you multiply it for your glory. Would you call even now and do really what only you can do, Father, would you save? As these people and people all over the country are are praying in their living rooms and in their kitchens and in their dens, in their cars. Would you touch their hearts, convict them of their sin, but draw them to the hope and the grace and the gift of eternal life? If that's your heart, if that's your prayer, all you need to do is say, Lord, save me. Save me, Father. Father, I've said what you'd have me to say. Thank you again for the opportunity, for the anointing, for the enabling of your spirit. Help me as well to be obedient to your truth. Now we pray in the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus, and amen.